What's up, Southbrook? How you doing? Yeah, it's summertime. Yes, Charlie's on vacation. I'm here. It's awesome. Uh, <laughs> happy Father's Day. Uh, I, I'm celebrating uh, my son's, my oldest son's 20th birthday today. So I've been a father for 20 years, and uh, this is where this is success. He's still around. I texted happy birthday to him at 9 a.m. and he texted me 20 minutes ago and said, can I use the American Express to buy clothes? <laughs> so things are going great. My younger son, Aiden, I have two boys. He just graduated from high school. Um, and uh, any of you parents who are ahead of me, we're done now, right? Like there's nothing left to do? Is that how it works? And any of you who might be behind me in raising kids and the thought of your little babies being 20 years old or going off to college or graduating high school, taking a job or not, if, <laughs> if imagining that future phase of parenting just breaks your heart because you're like, I can't, I, I can't imagine not having them around all the time, it's pretty awesome. <laughs> You just don't see it yet. There will be a time where you're like, this is awesome. So uh, happy Father's Day to those of you uh, who uh, have been managing that journey um, uh, no matter where you are in that that sort of process. Uh, I'm excited about this weekend. We're going to try something uh, that uh, I've never done before at church. Uh, So... Some of you know that I have uh, a dual or dual background career-wise. Uh, I went to Bible college and seminary, went to Las Vegas, started a church in my 20s, and uh, got kind of uh, honestly got clinically depressed. That sort of church work, it wasn't for me. And uh, part of what sort of got me out of my depression is I started taking classes at the Second City doing improv comedy just for fun, uh, and it just sort of opened me up. I think I've done, I've done a whole, I did a whole like talk on this several years ago about how important improv is to me, and it teaches you to be in the moment, uh, teaches you to say yes to things when you want to say no, uh, teaches you to, uh, to uh, help other people out and not be selfish, lots of, lots of things in my life. I never expected it would become any sort of career for me, but it sort of accidentally did. Uh, and I went from being a pastor to working on this Las Vegas Strip doing comedy for about five years, and then went to LA and pursued it further. Um, and uh, and this Easter, if you were around for Easter, we uh, sometimes sometimes I'm teacher Joe guy, sometimes they have me be actor Joe guy. So I was in uh, I was in like a, a thing we did about the gospel writers, a little acting bit, and uh, I got to meet Justin Howard, uh, who was part of Southbrook. Justin also happens to sit on the front row and uh, is the owner of the Black Box Improv Theater here in Dayton. Have you ever been there? Two. There's two. There are two. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Uh, so we quickly bonded. Uh, being being improv nerds uh, is kind of like being way into Dungeons and Dragons or something. I don't know. It's like when you meet somebody else, you're like, oh, let's talk about the stuff that nobody ever wants to talk about together. So... We did that all through the Easter weekend, and uh, some of the other folks here thought it might be cool to some week try that at church. So we're going to, I'm, I'm going to do the message I was assigned, um, and uh, at different points uh, throughout this talk, 
uh, instead of uh, what I might normally do is think of like a personal story to illustrate that point or something else, uh, instead of that, I'm just going to have Justin come up and we were going to improvise some scenes on the spot for you and see how it works. Sound good? All right. The thing about improv is when two people have a lot of experience, sometimes it works. So it'll be great to see uh, how that goes. Um, but we, we are in this series where we're kind of looking at, uh, you might even say the obscure uh, books of the New Testament, the small, the small letters and books that don't get a lot of airplay. It's called text messages. We've been in this string of books over the last couple of weeks where we looked at uh, 1 John two weeks ago, 2 John last week, and guess where we are now? 3 John. You got it. Uh, this is one of the smallest books in the whole Bible. It's a one-page letter that was written from this uh, man who calls himself the elder, and church history has always assumed that it was this Apostle John. Um, and it very well could be. It might be someone else. Uh, to learn from the letter doesn't really matter exactly who wrote it. Um, and it, it, it almost reads like we would write an email, uh, and it, it, it's, it's this elder who helped start a church probably, and he's writing to this guy named Gaius, who seems to be somewhat in charge of this little church. And he's writing to him uh, about another dude named Diotrephes. And I, I am a, I'm a Bible nerd and I'm pretty good at Bible names, but this one always stumps me. So I'm going to stumble over it a lot probably. But Diotrephes uh, is this guy that we only have a few verses about in the whole New Testament. We don't know anything else about him, but he just seems like he's the worst. And so this John is writing to Gaius talking about how to deal with this guy. And the, and the crux of the issue is this Diotrephes guy. Uh, is, it seems he's sort of petty. Uh, he's got a short temper. And he thinks he's right about everything. And there's this group of traveling teachers that were going from church to church. This is, right, this is first century church. So it's not like they, didn't, they actually didn't have Mr. Machines and stuff back then. So, uh, and they didn't have microphones and big buildings. They were meeting in houses for the most part. And they were groups often of 10 to 20 people, often just family units. And so they didn't have, you know, uh, lead catalyzers. Uh, they didn't have uh, senior pastors. They, they were dependent on teachers who would go from church to church and teach them about Jesus. Still at an age where many of them might have been firsthand around. Um, and, of course, just like every church in the world today, the early church disagreed on things. Um, and there were these teachers traveling around, evidently, and Diotrephes disagreed with them. And he's one of those sorts of people that if he disagrees with you, you're an idiot um, because he's always right about everything. And so uh, what we have here is, is this elder, this uh, mature man writing to this other guy, Gaius, talking about Diotrephes. Um, so let's just read, uh, ends up being a little, almost half the letter because it's a short little letter, but let's just read a few verses here uh, to, to set what we're going to talk about. Uh, John, the elder, says, I wrote to the church about this. Uh, talking about these traveling teachers, right? But Diotrephes, who loves to be the leader, he, re he refuses to have anything to do with us. When I come, I will report some of the things that he is doing and the evil accusations that he's making against us. Not only does he refuse to welcome the traveling teachers, he also tells others not to help them. And when they do help, he puts them out of the church. Dear friend, guys, dear friend, don't let this bad example influence you. That's it. That's what we're going to look at uh, today. And I thought it would be great on Father's Day weekend. Like if I was going to title this, uh, if I was like doing a seminary paper, I might call this message something like uh, what I call put up on the screens because I don't remember. Yeah. 
uh, yeah, yeah. The, uh, the, the Dytrophian, because uh, in seminary you can take a person's name and put IAN, it's like a whole philosophy now. Uh, the Dytrophian pathway to destruction. But for real, what this message is, is uh, how to be the worst. So uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time just talking about if you have a goal in life that you just want to be the worst. Like, it can be anything. You can just be the worst person, but look, it works for every specific. If you just want to be the worst dad, you want to be the worst employee, you want to be the worst boss, you want to be the worst wife or husband or spouse, um, you want to be the worst kid, it works for everything. It's awesome. Um, And so you know, uh, this is tongue-in-cheek, and you really should try to do the opposite of these things. Are we clear on that? (laughs) All right. (laughs) Charlie goes on vacation, and he just starts getting emails. He's like, oh, Joe's, Joe's speaking. Um, but there's three ways, there's three things that Diotrephes teaches us that if you just want to be a horrible person, just do these things. Um, and so the first one is, the first step to becoming the worst is simply that you have to always uh, want to be in charge. You ha- it says he always wants to be first. He always wants to be the leader. He always wants to be in charge. Have you ever met anyone like this? Yeah, they're the worst. So uh, you might struggle with this, and that's fine. That's what the whole point of today is. And I'm going to uh, hope that you see that some of this comes out of maybe your own insecurities and fear, and it's fine. Uh, But but this is the sort of thing we want to work on and not always have to be in charge. Now, there are situations where it's important for somebody to be in charge and make that clear, right? Like, just uh, shout something out. What's what's a place where you might be or uh, where it's important that somebody's in charge? What? A fire? Okay, thank you. A fire. Son, sit down. The house is on fire. I have a plant. Would you sit in the seat? Like metaphorically on no, fire? or the, No, literally, physically on fire. Why am I going to sit down? Because, because I want to do this right. Your house only burns down once. If we're going to do it, we're going to do it correctly, okay? Okay, Dad... You just leave. When a house is on fire, you like open the window, you leave. You That's what most people think, and not everyone gets out. So what we're going to do <laughs> is we're going to take a path that the fire is least likely to notice us slipping through, which is the longest path. Dad, this makes no sense. Seriously. Happy Father's Day, by the way. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Um, and I'm really sorry that I left the, the candle burning in my room. I just want to get that out of there first. I know this is my fault, and I'm sorry about that. And I think we should just walk out the front door. Thank you for wishing me happy Father's Day. You're welcome. I'm not even mad about the candle. Some things you can't help. Okay, cool. But if you keep bringing ideas to the table, we're going to die here. What's important is that I lead us to the outdoors where oxygen doesn't feed a fire but feeds our body. Okay. Uh there's literally an open window right here, and we live in a ranch-style house. And so that's I... what the fire expects us to do. <laughs> right. Who's dad here? Who's dad? Uh, you, you've been dad the whole time. Thank you. 16 means... years, you've been dad. And you always have great ideas, except, honestly, dad, I'm just going to come out and say this. When things get tense, uh-huh. like life and death situations, like emergencies. Yes, you... which we've had a few. Right, like the flood and the... Electric strike. The the um, you get a little weird, like kind of control. (laughs) 
I attended the Global Leadership Summit last year. All right, yeah. All right, so we have all had a dad like that at some point in our lives or a leader like that. <laughs> um, oftentimes what I find is the people that have to be in charge um, are, are, are generally uh, the people that are afraid you will know that they don't know what they're doing. It's like, I know it doesn't make sense, but it's the sort of folks that think, if I just am always in control, no one will see the fact that I actually don't know what to do. And that's a, 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 a diatrophian thing that uh, we want to get out of. And of course, leadership is important, and you ought to be in charge of some things sometimes. But there is no person on planet Earth that should be in charge of everything all the time. Uh, this is why I don't fly for Delta. I sit in the seat. Um, you know, it's why my it's why my uh, my kids when they were younger didn't balance the checkbook. That was my job. Um, because when you end up trying to be in charge of everything, uh, it it never works. And it actually, if you've ever fallen in this pattern, it it torments you because deep deep down you know you're just afraid. And the the thing we want to see is this diatrophies guy was doing the exact opposite of the example of Jesus who lived not many years before him. And you ask yourself about Jesus. Did Jesus always have to be in charge? The interesting thing about Jesus is he sort of could have been. He was, you know, Jesus. So he, he had authority and power over every single situation and every single person he met. At the very end of his life, when he's at the cross, uh, before he's being you know, uh, condemned to the cross, he's having conversations with people that can let him off. And he doesn't say a word. He says nothing. He's silent. He could have tried to talk his way out of it, or he could have powered up. But even in the moment, in the life and death moment of the cross, he chose uh, to submit to what was happening. And I think, uh, I think when we hear Jesus you know, say things like, the first will be last, and the last will be first, that's not just meant, those things, when he says those things, it's not just meant to confuse us for a second and move on. He's saying, in the, in the upside-down kingdom that I'm bringing, it's different. In the, in the world, it feels like you know, uh, that those who are always in charge are always the most important, but he says not so in our kingdom. It is those who serve. If you want to be great, he says, become what? Remember? A servant, a slave. He says if you want to be great, become a slave to everyone. And how we actually find greatness is not by powering up, but by humbling ourselves and taking a breath, using some empathy, asking ourselves, is this a moment when I need to be leading or can I submit here, even if I'm not even sure they're doing it the way I would do it? That is the mark, I think, of maturity versus this guy, Diotrephes, who was the worst. All right? All right, step number two to becoming the worst is... I don't memorize them. Okay. Uh, oh, yeah. 
have nothing to do with people different than you. This is super important if you want to be a terrible person. Please write this down. Um, to, to, to keep yourself cocooned in people that, that only believe exactly what you believe and look exactly the way you and have the same background that you have a background in is, uh, is a perfect, perfect way to become a very shallow person. Uh, and Diotrephes, this guy, it says very clearly that if, if one of these teachers came in and he, they, they were teaching something he didn't agree with, he wouldn't even let them come into the house. And in this, in this culture, they were coming to the house not just to teach. That's how they, they were coming to sleep and to eat. It was the, it, it's how they survived. And he wouldn't let them in just because he disagreed with them. And the thing is, when you surround yourself with people who are a little different than you, then, uh, then you become actually more well-rounded and a better person. So here's a question for you. Have any of you ever like, gone to a party or an event and you just weren't, you didn't fit in, like something was off. Has that ever happened to any of you guys? Yeah? Can't, where? Where was it? Many times, sure. Pick your favorite. When was the time you went into a room and you're like, I don't think I belong here? In-laws. I heard in-laws. I'm really excited to marry your daughter. <laughs> Yeah, I'll t- uh, no, I'm not thirsty. <laughs> Thanks for asking. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> we drink Schlitz in this house, son. Okay. Hey, um, <clears throat> Go ahead, have a seat. Okay. I'll stand. Oh, okay. <laughs> I um, I uh, was talking to your daughter, and she was saying that we don't really have a lot in common, you and I. I don't. I don't know if that's true. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah, you like tractor pulls, right? I've never been to a tractor pull. <laughs> what do they? Who pulls the tractor? <laughs> Is it a physical fitness thing? Is it like the strong man? Do they pull like they pull semis and planes and stuff? This is tractors and mud. You're, you're just you're just kidding about the tractor. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah, I thought so. Either. You've been. You've been. No, I'm excited. We got NASCAR tickets next weekend. and uh, Who car? J- NASCAR. Yeah. <laughs> Jenny said that you, you're a big NASCAR fan. I think I told her I like NASCARs. <laughs> oh, boy. I'm not sure it's working, but I'm having fun. It's having fun. Uh, it's hard to transition back to remember what I was going to say. The uh, yeah. So uh, when you surround yourself with people just like you, um, it, I'll say this: it is the most normal thing in the world. It's it's we are wired to be tribal creatures for our survival, and as human beings. Uh, one of the things that we have to purposely overcome is our instinct, just like I have an instinct to constantly eat chocolate cake. I have to overcome that. We have an instinct to surround ourselves with people that look like us um, and have been raised like us and talk like us so that we can be us and, and label other people others. And that makes us feel safe because we feel like if any, any of the others come for us, we'll all bound together metaphorically or, or literally and, and help each other and protect each other and fight for each other. It's very normal, 
very human thing to do. But Jesus comes and he calls us to be, you know, uh, more than just primal, to evolve spiritually, emotionally. And when Jesus comes to earth, what we see in him is uh, an impoverished Jewish rabbi who begins to call people to follow him. And he calls different sorts of people from the very beginning to follow him. He does not call any, uh, you know, rabbinical students. He himself really wasn't one. To launch this sort of great movement, he calls some fishermen, some like blue-collar workers. And he calls uh, a political zealot, you know, like a, a Greenpeace guy or something. And he gets them, you know in with these guys he calls a tax collector which would be like Tony Soprano (laughs) and most strikingly for his time he calls women to be his disciples in in a world where people thought you weren't even supposed to do that the women were the ones through their work that were funding his whole operation he goes into Samaria which is which is hard to explain, but it, it's, as, it's as if uh, Al-Qaeda or ISIS uh, controlled, you know, Michigan. I was going to say Canada. Michigan's more fun to think about. Like, <laughs> and, like, it, they're, it's, they're our bitter enemy, and they're right next door, and they, they used to be like us, but now, they're, now they hate us, and they're always trying to kill us, and we're always trying to kill them. By, by the third chapter of, of the Gospel of John... Jesus is in Samaria, in the middle of Samaria, talking to a prostitute. I mean, think, think about that for just a second. That, that if we were starting from scratch and we were writing this whole story about the Son of God who comes to earth to save people and, to, and, that, he, and that he's a Jewish guy, and we're going to say by chapter 3 he's talking to a prostitute in you know, the cellophane, none of us would think to go there. He shatters those. The only people Jesus ever really got very upset with were the people that thought they had it all right. He had immeasurable grace for people that realized they didn't have it all together. It was for the diatrophies sorts of people, those people that were the worst, um, that, he would, that he would get in their face. Uh, Richard Rohr says the, the, only, the only people that uh, Jesus excluded were exclusionary people. That was the only thing that could get you excluded was if you were already exclusionary. Don't be like Diotrephes. That would make you the worst. All right? Okay, last one. Step three to becoming the worst is to attack and threaten everyone. Pretty simple. Uh, And specifically in Diotrephes' case, he kind of lays out a blueprint for how to do it if you really want to do it. The people you attack, you go on the attack of people you disagree with. You don't even give them a second to to talk to you. Um, Even... Even if it means lying about it, because it says in the text that Diotrephes lied about John, uh, do whatever you can. Always attack first. Be on the offensive. You know, if someone happens to believe in the doctrine of transubstantiation instead of consubstantiation or whatever the other one is, right? Then that's a. I hope most of you don't know what that is. That's the point. Like, it's a it's a little theological thing that people fought about for two thousand years. And you find out someone doesn't believe in that, Diotrephes would say, well, you're stupid and ugly. Like, I hate you. You're the worst. And you're an idiot. And if you believe that, 
then everything you believe is stupid and I don't ever want to talk to you again unless it's just berating you. It's a pretty simple playbook. And then for those who actually are your friends, and I don't know how these people have friends, but they always do, um, what you're supposed to do to those people is just threaten them so that they're always afraid that they'll be the next one to be attacked. It's a pretty miserable way to live if you think about it. And if you take a step back, we don't all have to have psychology degrees to realize people like that are really afraid for people to see what's really going on inside. And if you become the sort of person that is just always on the attack and always threatening people, it's a pretty dead giveaway that you're lost. You're just kind of miserable. You're hurting. And that is um, a deflection method. And if you know, if you've noticed, if you've, People that are on the extreme version of this, right? Like, like, um, like, like someone that just loses all touch with the reality and just does honestly believe that they're always right all the time will often attack you for the very things that they are struggling with. It's a psychological thing that happens when you live this pattern over and over and over again. And uh, Jesus came to break it. But everybody fights. Everybody disagrees. Everybody yells at people once in a while. Where's a place that you've been that you didn't expect to see someone fighting, but you saw a fight? Not phys- could be physical or. <laughs> All right, I heard church and middle school basketball games, so do with that whatever you want. Hey, Joe. Notice uh, Charlie's not here this weekend. Yep, vacation. Vacation from reality. <laughs> that guy's an idiot. Man, uh, I'm sorry. You, I know you just started last week, and you're the new youth pastor. I'm, what's your name again? Eduardo. Okay. You don't even know my name? Like, you can't remember a name? I just started. Well, we got the email, and it, it, it makes things complicated if your name really is Eduardo. Is that... Okay, yeah, that's my name. Okay. I'm so sorry that I knew your name. I'm just giving you a little advice, uh-huh. right, as the executive pastor. Oh, name drop yourself. Yeah, I know, I know. Good. Sean Case. Um, <laughs> so, uh, look, I've gotten by a lot on my good looks. Mm. Really? Yeah. You didn't know me when I was younger. I was going to say, so things must have changed. Yeah, I'm losing some hair now. <laughs> but one thing I know for sure is uh, I don't know if you want to, like, come in and, like, you know, make fun of the boss. Oh, I just, I'm just like uh, pointing out the obvious stuff, you know. I think it's important that we all be real honest with ourselves. And he... Okay, well then, I guess it's my point, is I'm being honest with you right now that, mm-hmm. you know, I, I just think you shouldn't call the leap catalyzer an idiot. Mm. And I think you should brush your teeth more. <laughs> I floss every day. <laughs> Do you know how you learn to floss every day? Little side note. Don't floss for a while. That's how. And then the dentist tells you you have cavities. <laughs> That's free. That advice right there? Totally free. <laughs> All right. So here we ask ourselves this question on this third thing, right? So Diotrephes, here's this guy. He is attacking everyone who disagrees with him because if you disagree with him, you're the enemy. 
He is threatening everyone who happens to agree with him just so they will never disagree with him. We ask ourselves the question as Christians, is that the way Jesus operated? And guess what the answer is? No, he didn't. Uh, one, of the, one, of the, uh, one of the things I love about our faith and learning how to express what it means to be a Christian, and it has evolved and meant different things for me through the years. But one thing that, that has never left me is that we have, this, we have this great record of the story of this man, Jesus. And when we don't know what to do, what we're supposed to do is know his story so well that we can imagine what he might do in our place, the, kind, the way he might react. And we know his teachings, right? Uh, but we also see in him these real-life stories. When he, when he teaches things like, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute. You understand, like, one of the hard things is, especially if you've been to church a while, you hear Bible verses like that, and you just, you turn your brain off a little bit, because you're like, I know he said that. But do you really, do you, have you embraced the fact <laughs> that he said that, and meant it, and did it? Love your enemies. Pray for those who hurt you on purpose. We see, uh, we see Jesus doing this um, all through his life. Um, one of my favorite stories that I know I've told to you before is in John chapter 8, when, uh, when the Pharisees, who were uh, the Diotrephes fan club, basically, like uh, religious hypocrites, who were threatened by Jesus and looking for some way to uh, so, some way to discredit him. They find a woman who's caught in the very act of adultery and they, they grab her while she's naked and drag her through the street and they throw her at the feet of Jesus. And they say, the law of Moses says we should stone this woman. What do you say? Imagine that. The, the, the pure like human injustice of taking this woman and, and treating her that way. And it was a great question if you want to trap Jesus because technically the law of Moses does say that that is a sin that if there are witnesses to, you can be stoned. So if he says, I'm Jesus, the hippie grace guy, let her go, then he's going to be discredited and probably arrested for heresy. But if he says, you're right, technically according to the law, this is something we should kill her. And they stone her. Remember that every single person already following Jesus has done worse things than this. Uh, that's, that's bad for business. Jesus is not going to have anybody following him the day after he kills someone for messing up. He's stuck. So it says he, he, he bends down the ground. He, he writes something we don't know what on the ground. He picks up, I was imagining, he doesn't say this. I imagine him like picking up a stone himself for dramatic effect. And he says, this is what we're going to do. Whoever's not sinned, let him cast the first stone. And um, I think what he's actually saying there very technically is, because in the, not to get too nerdy, but way back in the original text, uh, it says that there have to be two witnesses that see this affair happening, which is weird, like eyewitnesses, that's weird. Um, and that those eyewitnesses 
could not be guilty of the same thing. If they were guilty of the same thing, they disqualified as eyewitnesses. And so I really think what Jesus says, saying here to all these religious men around him, is any of you who have not sinned like this, like been unfaithful, cast the first stone. He's not saying if you cheat on your taxes, you can't throw a stone. He's saying if you've slept with someone who isn't your wife, you know, you can't, you can't throw a stone. And it says one by one, starting with the oldest to the youngest. I like that detail. They had more time, <laughs> I guess. Um, that they dropped their stones. And there's no one left except Jesus and this woman. Um, and he, he, he bends down, he lifts up her chin, and he says, uh, where are those who condemn you? They're not here. And I don't condemn you either. But stop it. You're killing yourself. Here's the thing about that. That is my favorite story in there. Uh, It's actually a late-dated story. There's a good chance it wasn't actually in the original book of John. So if you notice, it's kind of bracketed out in your Bible, and it might say something like, we're not entirely sure that this story was originally in there. And that used to really bum me out because it's my favorite one. (laughs) Like, that's not cool. But then I started thinking, well, what if it wasn't originally in there? What if someone slipped it in a good 80 years later? And what if it actually maybe never actually happened, but the story was so good they put it in there? Because it exemplified so much of who Jesus was that those first Christians would not dare not let us have that story. It's just as powerful where it actually happened or if it's a parable that developed around Jesus trying to explain what kind of guy he was. Because that's what kind of guy he was. A Diotrephes sort of guy doesn't say, I don't condemn you. <laughs> and the thing is, if you love people that much, you earn the right to actually say to them from time to time, but you did mess up. But you really should think about changing. But that's not the best way to live. And when you love someone first that much and you say those things, they listen to you. And a lot of times they take action and they change. Because Jesus knew and embodied that it is the power of of love. It is the power of grace. That is the only real thing that makes people truly want to be better and truly want to change. So you may be surprised by this as the ultimate point of what I'm trying to say is I feel like you should be a lot more like Jesus than Diotrephes. (laughs) And, And it is very natural, especially when we get afraid or when we feel incapable or when we feel invisible, to want to power up, to want to be in charge, to want to tell people off, to want to make it clear to everyone that we are good at this and you're not. It is the most natural thing in the world, and that's why five-year-olds do it. You don't have to. You get to evolve. You get to purposefully choose a deeper, better, more true, more real existence 
And it's so much more peaceful and joyous than trying to be that Diotrephes guy. All right? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much uh, for being present here with us. Um, Sometimes I think we see these little passages in Scripture and think they don't have anything to, to do with us. And it is, it is, uh, it is humbling and great to, and awesome to see like these little verses when we really think about it. We see ourselves. Um, help us to be more like Jesus um, and to not be so afraid and insecure and hurt that we lash out, um, but to find people that we can be honest with, to submit sometimes to people, to listen to people, to surround ourselves with people who talk different and think different and live differently than us and believe different things about you and in doing so to to build a true human community. Give us the strength and hope to do that. Uh, Thank you for the gift that Improv has given me and thanks for uh, 